What is up, guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength and Physique with your hosts, Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are betting themselves with fitness. Welcome back to All The Smoke on Strength and Physique. We got one of the top five, top two, one, I don't even give a damn, but we got a great special guest, Dr. Steph Allen, um, known as the individual that can fix and probably get you better than where you were post ACL. Um, and we're pretty much talking and we're diving deep into ACL injury, prehab, post rehab, all of that good stuff. Um, and I'm really excited for this because um, as we were talking a little bit before, Chris and I definitely um, thought we were going to be physical therapists um, and looking at us now, um, that's not at anything what we are doing and kind of talking about the system a little bit uh, before we hit this record button. It's it's in the right direction. I think what they're doing at, you know, the Level Up Initiative um, and now collaborating with clinical athlete, I think you know, a lot of good things are going to be happening. I think once we're able to kind of bridge that gap from, you know, a physical therapist or having those relationships here that we're kind of trying to create and bridging that gap of, you know, lack of education and adherence, um, we're able to kind of, again, meet that person in the middle, which is our client and get them better. So I'm going to shut up now. Um, Dr. Allen, for those individuals who have no idea who you are, could you please explain that, please? Oh, thank you very much. Um, I'm very pumped to be here. I did listen to your guys' podcast with Quinn. Um, Quinn is like family now and any chance I have to, to chirp him, I will. Um, I am Steph Allen. I'm a PT at Boston Physical Therapy and Wellness right outside of Boston. Um, I'm also co-founder of the Level Up Initiative with my fiance, Zach Gabor, and also um, we just merged with Clinical Athlete as um, Kalu, and we do a summit. Well, we, it's going to be our second summit um, this September, virtual summit again, because Lord knows what we're going to, what state our country is going to be in in September. So we decided one more year that way, but it was so awesome last year that um, we didn't feel so bad about opting for that. So those are a couple of the things I dabble in. Um, very recently, I started my own virtual coaching business called ACL Resolve. Um, as Adam mentioned, I that's kind of my, uh, well, that kind of is my nerd passion. And uh, primarily what my, I would say probably between 70 and 80% of my caseload in the clinic, because I'm still working part-time, um, is people who have had an ACL injury and or surgery. Not everyone has had surgery, um, and I'm sure we may talk about that at some point. Um, but yeah, that's that's me right now. I think the other things that you should probably know about me is uh, that I am obsessed with my dog. <laughs> so if anyone follows me on Instagram, can you call uh, you? Can you call your dog in? Can you? Can we get this dog on the if, podcast? If she will actually wake up, <laughs> she, she's on her couch. Uh, Penny. She's dead to the world. No, there's no way. So well, we, I'm going to have to cut you off because I just saw the Red Sox. Um, how's it feel? To be, <laughs> uh, I'm, we're, we're from Tampa. How does that feel? I know I'm, from, I'm from Detroit. Us, I'm from they Detroit. Got, they got us 20 to four the other day, but then we just beat them. I think it was the eight to two. And now we're you know still sitting at first place. So I will say um, the Red Sox fan is Zach since he was younger. Um not that I don't love going to Fenway because I absolutely love going to Fenway. I am way more of a basketball fan um, than I am baseball. I don't 
mind baseball. I have a hard time watching it on TV. <laughs> um, and I'm from New Jersey, but I also was brought up to not like, I'll put it lightly, to not like the Yankees. <laughs> um, so what I am is a pretty big Celtics fan. That's almost just as bad, honestly. I'm, I'm, I'm a Miami <laughs> Heat fan, and I love Damian Lillard, so you Boston Celtics. Honestly, anything in Boston, I, I can't stand. You, it's, and that's how it is. You either hate them or you love them. And I'm on a strong hate train for sure. I'm honestly, I don't hate them. I don't love them. So maybe it's just like a Tampa thing because I'm a Detroit Tigers. Pist- Pistons mm. is, I'm not, I'm not big into the NBA, uh, but yeah. Um, NBA's my- hard to watch, not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> you're talking to a hooper right now i don't know about that my big question is what uh what got you into acls like did you just did you have a past injury did you just start taking on these clients and you you found that there was an issue and you attacked it what was that situation yeah i'll be honest i um when i went to so i tore my acl uh senior year of high school playing basketball. Um, and I mean, I retrospect or, uh, hindsight, I should say, I'm thinking retrospectively like research is terrible. Um, I think for me, there were some other things involved. Um, at the time it was right before, um, being treated for eating disorder. So I think there was also an energy, like the, in general, I think there was a confluence of things for me as far as like what went, sorry what went into that injury itself. Um, but tore playing basketball, went to PT and loved it. Um, now looking back, knowing what I know, the PT wasn't great. I mean, I loved my PT and I also was, you know, I didn't get surgery until the spring and then I was going to school in a few months. As long as I was running and lifting, I didn't care. So I didn't really do any of that sort of end stage stuff. Um, that now I feel like is super important if you want to get back to doing something dynamic. So um, that's when I was like first introduced to it. I'm, I'm 32. So when I was in high school, it wasn't, it like ACL is so commonly, it's it literally like quote unquote household name now, especially for female athletes. So I feel like it wasn't, I didn't know much about it. I just knew it sucked because I thought it was, you know, just like a knee sprain. And it took me out for States for my senior year. That's all I really cared about. Um, and then I went to PT school because I had applied to a couple of PT schools, but also pre-med to a few others. Cause I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and I went to Ithaca college for PT school. And then I did travel PT after I did my residency. And I think that's where I really started to develop a, a passion and kind of fire for it because it, I started to, I started to get kind of pissed off that this particular subgroup, you know, people who have had an ACL injury were so, um, mismanaged might be the word, or just sort of like, if we know that the injury itself is, it takes so long and there's these neurological changes that happen and this crazy amount of atrophy and the retail rates are so bad. Like, why are we not trying to do something a little better than have them in PT for three months and then they're wearing their insurance is up 
as long as they can kick into the surgeon's leg and or do some, you know, low level plyos and straight line running, then they're good. And they can just quote unquote, begin to ramp up back to sport. Like, what does that even mean? Um, so I think that's when it first started. And then when I came here and sort of continued to see, um, the same thing, but also more so had the ability, you know, Dave, our owner is super forward thinking. So I had equipment and I had space to be able to start to try stuff out with, with patients and athletes that I didn't have the opportunity to in a lot of like just general hospital outpatient ortho places during travel. Um, and not only did I get humbled really quick at how hard it is to actually get somebody back stronger than they were before. Um, but just a lot of the kind of nuanced and, and bumps in the road that can happen post-op and managing insurance, uh, trying to work around that, um, all those things. That's when I was really like, okay, because this is stuff that I think about <laughs> at night before I go to bed and like when I'm eating dinner and when I'm doing other stuff, like this is probably something I should pour a little bit more into. And what, so we'll go into, I guess you, you mentioned your background on what possibly could have caused some issues with your previous injury. However, specifically non-contact injuries, that's a really big deal. Uh, even outside of sport in sport, there's a lot of different causes, uh, I guess, could you explain the primary purpose of the ACL in the knee and then what are some common causes or what you have seen to be common causes? Yeah, absolutely. So the ACL itself is one of two cruciate or like crisscrossed ligaments that you have inside your knee joint. The ACL itself starts from the outside part of your top leg bone or your femur and crisscrosses within the joint to the inside top part of your lower leg or your tibia. It's essential job is to prevent the lower leg from slipping forward on the upper part of your leg. Um, obviously there's other muscles and, uh, tendons and ligaments on the inside and outside that help with that stability but that's its very crude um, mechanical job. Um, it also has some, uh, how should I put this? It does some help with rotation stability as well, um, but that's its, its primary one. And I do think the word cause sometimes makes me cringe a little bit, not, not like in that way. Um, you're okay for saying that, Chris. Um, but just that it's been so hard to directly link any one thing. Um, I honestly think that, I mean, there's definitely contributing factors and research would tell us if we were to look at it all in front of us. Um, and I've not read it all, not even close. Uh, there's so much on ACL, but strength is a huge piece and, my bias is going to go towards if I had to pick one, one arena within which things could change to potentially decrease ACL tears, particularly in youth female athletes, 
I think the biggest thing would be the fact that around ages between nine and 13 or adolescence, what do young males get encouraged to do for their sport? They go to the weight room. Um, and again, not saying that that is the one and only thing, but females are not encouraged to, whether implicitly or explicitly. Most of it is probably already at that point ingrained in them. That's not where they belong. Um, even if they are a tomboy, like I was pretty much a boy until high school. <laughs> like, and I, all I wanted to do was play basketball. Um, but I never thought about stepping foot in the weight room. That was for the football team. Um, so I wonder, like my hypothesis would be, I wonder what, um, at least primary injury, like the first time people are injured, I wonder, I wonder what that rate would be if it was a little bit more across the board, equal, um, strength training wise. Um, and I know that's a very vague quote unquote solution, but more so, you know, compound lifting, um, something more than body weight to two times a week, you know, something, something like that. Very, very general developmental strength. Um, so I think that on top of the fact that females are already just, you know, per pound, not as strong as males, um, is one piece. I do also feel like just the mechanics of where the knee joint is in the whole chain is tough because people have probably heard something like, oh, it's just, it's the dumb joint. Like it gets stuck in the middle, but it really does end up almost having to be, um, so I'm also a middle child and I sometimes correlate the knee to being the middle child that's trying to appease everyone else and kind of just trying to do what it's supposed to do. But every once in a while it gets caught in the middle and it just can't really handle everything. Um, so as far as analogies go, that may help some people, but you know, the mechanism itself, and you know, I'll, I'll pause for a second for you if, if, if you guys have questions, but the mechanism itself um, sometimes speaks a little bit to that as well. It's just a hard, it's a hard in the middle joint. Yeah. I think what you mentioned is uh, amazing because it's not something I have ever thought of, but it's 100% true. The, the fact that society has this stigma that, okay, yes, it's okay for these young boys to get into the weight room, but we never push that onto females. And we have the research out there that states if you start exercising male or female at a younger age, that your ceiling of being stronger, healthier, uh, maybe not healthier, but I know stronger, more muscle is definitely a bigger possibility. And specifically with females, they're more likely to have knee issues and it's something that society instills, not something that they can really con control. And I think that's so relatable because most people in the general population, if they have a fitness related goal, they might just want to lose weight or they might want to just get stronger. However, society has taught them that they can't have as much food as they need to have because, okay, potato chips will make you fat and weak or whatever the case is. Adam, do you have something to input? Yeah. So Steph, like my biggest thing, I always, and you, again, you made a great point. Like I honestly didn't even think of that. Like, right. Females are, Hey, stay away from the weight room. That's for the guys. That's like you said, that's for the football team. And I would even say growing up as a basketball athlete, we barely touched the weight room, even in high school. Again, you said it, it's for the football team. Um, but my always thing, I think nowadays is we specialize so early, right? We have somebody playing basketball at the age of six, 
and you ain't touching a, a bat. Like for me specifically, I played everything. And I think again, with nineties and eighties, those babies, right. We did everything, but now it's like so specialized and we don't have that, I guess, motor control. And we, I guess maybe are overcompensating or putting so much demand on that middle child, our knee. Um, why is it, do you think that's why another reason why it's so prevalent now for non-contact at those elite level athletes, because we've lost some great athletes, great hoopers from non-contact injuries, particularly the ACL. So I always wonder what is that is because, Hey man, you've been playing AAU since you were six years old four, six games every weekend, and you're not taught to rest. Again, you're not resistance training. It's just go, 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 go. Yeah, that that feeds into another one of my biases that's more like youth training development. Um, I've been highly, well, in a lot of ways, but highly influenced by Derek Miles on this too. Um, and he directed me towards um, a guy named Adrian Feigenbaum. He's a lot of youth athletic, like long LTAD, long-term athletic development research. And I agree with you. I feel like, you know, he's also posted things about, you know, the graphs that you see of the highest level and lowest injured professional athletes. Now, almost all of them were three sport athletes. Um, and it's so, you know, I have a 10 year old nephew and he loves baseball and he plays for most of the year, which is great. Um, and it's really hard. He just recently made a fairly, you know, invite only um, club team, which is great. And they send a lot of kids, you know, between D1 and D3 from that area. But I said to my sister, I was like, he needs to do something, at least, you know, some sort of organized strength training whenever he doesn't have too much baseball and needs to play at least one other sport. Um, luckily, he just loves all sports. So that that would be, you know advantageous for him but especially from looking into a little bit of Adrian Feigenbaum's work too I I agree with you in that I feel like so he he calls it um movement literacy and there's other you know people whose names I can't remember right now but there's also the concept out there of just um movement variability being advantageous so when you talk about the knee itself, and Eric Mira talks about this too, is if you talk, if you take like the drop depth jump, that or depth drop jump, whatever, from a box and then right back up, that they use a lot in ACL research and part of how dynamic valgus has uh, accrued such this, it's it's been demonized, if you will, as like such a, a causative factor, um, and that particular jump, what you even see in the research is there's a little bit of variability every time. And so even just that, where it's a predicted environment, they're being told exactly what to do, they're being video camera, you know, in a research setting, think about the amount of variability that has to happen on a court or a field or whatever that may be. The ACL itself tears within milliseconds when the knee is between zero and 30 degrees of flexion. Um, and usually is when people are slowing down to change direction and then re-accelerating. Um, so those kind of things are obviously not something that we can directly replicate in the clinic. It's not something where like someone could develop a, you know, quote unquote injury prevention program, even that's another word that I don't like to use. Um, 
but you can't necessarily be like, okay, we're going to train you how to do this movement with more of a bent knee and the right, it just, they just need to be strong enough, A, and they need to be able to have gone through enough different unpredictable movement situations fast, like quickly, um, to have probably the lowest risk in my opinion. And even then you're not guaranteed because sometimes shit happens. So again, you, you mentioned right risk. So what are you doing to, I guess, an individual that is, you know, maybe pick them off the street. What are you looking at them head to toe? Hey, you look like you're going to tear your ACL or obviously we're saying strength and stuff like that, but what are the common mis or common variables that you would look at our assessments that, that says, Hey, you are more than likely going to tear your ACL. Yeah. And I, I mean, just to clarify, I wouldn't actually ever say that to them, but it definitely as a clinician. And I know you didn't mean that. I just, just to clarify. Um, but yeah, there's definitely people that come into the clinic, you know, they haven't had an injury yet, but they're trying to go back to their sport. And maybe they've been having some knee pain or ankle pain or hip pain even, um, and looking how they move, they would, you know, if you're looking at sort of a give or take checklist from the research, you know, dynamic valgus is one of them that tends to be, you know, how, how they move with, with jumping does also in the research correlate to people who, who go on to have an injury. Um, so I'm, I'm not saying that I completely throw out things like that. If they also are in, um, conjunction with some other things, those other things being a significant, um, either significantly low output for quads. So we're lucky enough to have a dynamometer, um, to measure that force output. And also if there's a huge discrepancy in hamstring to quad ratio too, cause that, you know, hamstrings, I wouldn't go as far to say they have a protective effect because I don't think that's super accurate, but there is, there is some research to suggest that co-contraction between hamstrings and quads. Um, if people have more of that, they potentially have a little, there might be, might be less inclined to have, um, some more of that tibial forward translation in, in certain positions. Um, so I'm definitely looking at strength. The one thing that I'm putting more weight on now over the last couple of years versus prior is that I'm actually looking for a decent amount of quad output. So people want to be close to body weight. That's like kind of ideal in, in my mind, most people, especially adolescent athletes, if you were to take them off the street are not doing that. And most of them do not have a ton of hamstring strength unless they're like a high level sprinter or they're doing a ton of lifting on their own. Um, so those are probably two biggest pieces. I will take a look at things like a higher step, like eccentric step down or like a heel tap or whatever, because believe it or not, that's decent, decent quad control. Not everybody has that. It's the only reason I've started to do that instead of maybe like a single leg squat is because people can lean forward and really use a lot of their hips. Um, which even, you know, I mean, post-op, I see it a lot, but you'd be surprised how many people are, are not going to feel comfortable with letting that knee come forward and letting themselves just go into a deep single leg squat and push up. Um, I do, I do look at jumping, um, like single leg jump, a, a kind of, if you were to stand on like a stool, it doesn't even have to be very high, but just a, a drop land on one leg and see how they're actually attenuating force. Cause sometimes it just will immediately go into a little bit of that valgus and they either can't, either can't keep their balance or the only way they do control the landing is if 
that knee buckles in a little bit. So if that's their default pattern, um, then there might be some of the things in, in the plyos and strength that I might try to um, add into, I wouldn't say reverse because sometimes the pattern, you know, a lot of times the pattern isn't fully going to change, but if I can get them doing that a little bit cleaner and also be a lot stronger, um, then that's probably the best we can do from a, a, a rehab perspective. And I also take a look at them run and change direction if I can. I mean, we don't have a huge clinic, but depending on time of year, I would love to either get them out back or, um, you know, on our small turf, just do like a, a modified T drill or something like that. So I can see how they are slowing down and changing direction because that can be a big tell. So for knee valgus, you mentioned a few things. I'll just recap them uh, just to make sure I didn't miss any. Uh, quad output, making sure you can control your body weight, uh, what, whether it's single leg uh, or double leg, making sure the quad output's high. Jumping, making sure just the dynamics of that is very clean. And then also changing of direction. Uh, however, what are some issues that might cause the knee valgus within those three things is, is it quad and hamstring strength? Uh, maybe that plays a role into it. Is it, um, muscles within lower than the knee above the knee, uh, or tightness anywhere from the head to toe movements? Uh, I guess I could be missing some as well. Yeah, no, I mean, I also wish that, um, you know, that, that might be, see million dollars doesn't go very far anymore, but a lot of million dollar question. Um, it is really hard to sort of externally determine that, um, because valgus and dynamic valgus can, can happen for a lot of reasons. Sometimes for people, it is that they have super stiff ankles and the only way to get to depth aside from using their hips is to, um, let the knee come in a little bit. That's how they can get lower to the ground. Um, for, probably more often than not, I do feel like I have the innate bias similar to Eric Mira of it's the quads until it's not the quads. Um, so for someone to control and feel good with me going decently far over the toes and being able to keep an upright trunk, especially when you're dropping down from either a step and landing, and or when you're trying to control without letting your heel come up a really high lateral heel tap, um, that's a decent amount of quad demand and sometimes isn't even really comfortable. Like on my surgery side, that's not comfortable on my knee. I can do it, but it, it, I have to fight it to not have it go in and it also doesn't feel good. Um, so just, just knowing that and feeling the difference side to side, I can tell the demand on the quads that it is. Um, and then I think the last most common reason probably is just that they've always done it that way. Um, and it may have initially been, you know, initiated by some, who knows, maybe some weakness somewhere, but that particular pattern, they've just, you know, if you, if you watch somebody go downstairs, maybe really slow, you might see something similar or, I'm trying to think what else, like a, a really high, like lateral step off. If they're going to push off that down leg is probably going to dip in a little bit. So anytime they're either accepting force through a single leg or trying to push off 
that's just their strategy. And that I think sometimes goes back to that whole movement literacy slash, um, you know, they're not necessarily exercising a ton of variability. They're just using the same strategy. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because again, I feel like what you don't know, you don't know. You're just going to continuously do that movement until you're kind of taught better. Um, and I think, I guess one myth or some question that I always had is, right, what is, you know, you're doing those plyometrics. Have you noticed a correlation from those individuals that are able to land soft, but I guess firm than those other ones that are just landing and it sounds like they're about to cause an earthquake, how loud they sound? Is that correlate to anything? I can't, I can't say that it does. And I've also gotten away. That's a really good point. I might divert a little bit here for a second. Um, I used to assume that everybody should be like when I was queuing plyos of like all types that they should land soft. Um, and then I started to ask questions of myself, like, well, cause I'm watching them play sport and there's a lot of situations where like, there's no way they can land soft. They have to stay stiff and be able to push off quickly. So sometimes I'll, I'll keep it variable, even like within a session and I'll have them do one set of like box jumps, let's say, or single leg box jump. And, you know, I'll say like, I want you to, I don't want to hear you when you land, you know? So that's a little bit more of, for lack of better words, like force absorption sort of thing. Um, and then others I'll say, I want you to, as soon as you get up on the box, like stomp and stand straight up. So it is kind of like stiff or something that might, for people trying to kind of tease out the difference of what I'm saying here, like something like a pogo hop where you're stiff ankles, stiff knees, um, and you're really attacking the ground hard would be different than like dropping down from a stool and really kind of sinking low into knee flexion and absorbing that force. Um, does that make sense? So I, I don't, I don't usually see a huge difference in how people, what their default is. Like if their default is either to be really loud or to be really soft, I think what that ends up telling me is more, okay. So I'll give, I'll give a quick example. I had, um, he's about to graduate, but I have a kid who's been with me for almost a year. He's been mostly just kind of doing like training for the last few months. Um, but he's a high level skier. That's how he tore it. And his ability to like really get low knee over toe and like absorb force is phenomenal. But for him to get off the ground quickly and things like rate of force development and things like impulse, like spending little time on the ground and getting as high as you can really has a hard time. So if their default is to land softly, then I think like, okay, let me try a few higher level softer land things without cueing them too much and see. And then when I change the speed on them and I say, Hey, you know, let's try this one where you have to get off the ground quickly. And I want you to think it's like hot lava, spend as little time on the ground as you can. Um, and they have a really hard time, like they're stuck in the mud. Then I know where I might skew the plyos a little bit, if that makes sense. I said before, the better and the more accurate, I guess you can see where their, their weaknesses is. And then again, it seems like you're going to attack that. Um, I think, you know, next question or kind of, I guess the next phase is right. We're talking, almost talking about, Hey, you have an ACL injury, or this is the ACL. Um, now I kind of want to go into right post-op or pre-op actually, is there any benefit to doing 
again, strengthening exercises, right? If you've already, Hey, I've torn my ACL, but my surgery is a month out. Is it meaningful to even do some of these prehab exercises before you go under the knife? Um, and then, you know, post-op from your experience, what is the biggest hurdle you've had, I guess, getting somebody back to quote unquote normal from this particular injury? Yes, I will 100% recognize my bias here with the um, concept of, of preoperative uh, training, if you will, because there's, there's two big pieces with that why I think it's so important. One is for, for those who might not actually be in the, what we would consider like higher level or athletic population. A lot of times they need, and even some within, they just need a lot of education on like what to expect because they don't often get it at the ortho or at the, you know, whoever they see about um, and whoever they talk to about getting surgery, they don't get a lot of that. Unfortunately, I'm hopeful that that will change in the future. And I think part of that responsibility falls on us as PTs to get in touch with more physicians and surgeons. Um, so I think that piece as well, because for example, I think some people don't realize that it's actually going to hurt that much after it does. It sucks. It's that those first like seven to 10 days and some, and you know, there are, there are the outliers, like people, um, are, you know, that don't even need pain meds or that are, you know, chilling after three or four days. Um, and then there's also people that have a really tough time after surgery. So just knowing that that's a possibility that if it does happen, then they're not like, oh my God, is something wrong? Did I mess up the surgery or whatever? Um, so that piece, and then also you, when you tear your ACL, and I'm sure this is, it just it seems to be one of the unique things for this particular injury. Almost immediately your body slash nervous system like turns down how much it's activating your quads. And it's been shown to potentially be a little bit both sides. So like both sides get weak pretty quick, pretty after, like after the injury. And then you add on top of it, just being a little less active because it might be swollen or it might hurt, or you're not sure what's going on. And you're inherently just kind of quote unquote, taking it easy, which is also okay. Um, that, and it's huge to have full range of motion prior to surgery. Um, so right now where I feel like I stand on this is, and again, if you talk to me in a year, it might change <laughs> always learning, but I wouldn't necessarily, unless it's a huge time constraint, tell somebody to get surgery immediately. I would say, let's give it, even if it's only three or four weeks, let's give it time for the swelling to come down to quote unquote, have a calm knee to get as much of that range as we can. Ideally, you know, full extension, ideally, ideally a little hyperextension, um, work on some strength, even if it's not tolerating load a lot, there's things like we can, we can use BFR or something like that early on so that it's not a ton of load, um, and get you walking normally. So those are the biggest, the biggest things like full range, initiate some form of load or strengthening for the quads. And, um, I want you to feel as though you're walking normally, as normally as you can, because having those three things going into surgery is a lot easier to get them immediately after surgery. And those are really kind of the big rocks immediately after surgery. Yeah. You answered. So I was like, so it sounds like, again, you're trying to limit the, the, the 
bigger hole that you're already kind of having going into the surgery. So it almost seems like, again, we have less to kind of recomp almost if you are kind of being proactive in a sense. Yeah. And the, I find there is, I don't know if it's maybe less fear or a little bit more of like a, okay, I know what to, to expect. Let's, let's get this done after surgery versus having to learn all of that as soon as they're done with surgery and, and realize that I think people are more inclined to be looking like they're staring up a really, really tall hill that they have to climb. If all of this is being thrown at them immediately after surgery and no one's really ever told them this, unfortunately, that's what I get more often is people that come after surgery. Um, and it's tough. And I think, you know, you also asked what are the biggest struggles immediately after surgery and it definitely depends, but I think that the initial, initial phase once like pain calms down. Cause I really, t- I mean, the first week or so, if you're someone who's not really tolerating the anesthesia well, or like pain meds made me super nauseous. I stopped taking them after like one day. Um, everybody, everybody responds differently. As long as you are doing some sort of range of motion stuff every day, and at least trying to do quad sets and, and moving enough so that you're not at risk for, you know, a blood clot, then I don't put too much pressure on people that first week or so. And I think that, that that is definitely something that has changed a little bit for me over the last few years, because I used to also think like, okay, we got like, you know, we're behind or whatever. Um, so I don't, I don't see the longer term outcomes changing significantly enough for, for that. So I, I think people can kind of take a little bit of comfort in the fact that like that first week, let your, I mean, let your body chill. Um, but what I do, what I do see more recently too, is if somebody's had a meniscus repair and especially if they're, they're non-weight bearing, that a lot of people do have a tough time getting back flexion. Um, and I'm talking like months sometimes to get past like 90 and, you know, young, younger, it doesn't really seem to discriminate. And it is something that again, before like, you know, SOS shout out to Derek and Eric and, you know, some of my other, um, my other mentors, it is, it can happen with that. So I, I think also being able to have that conversation with people who are about to get a meniscus repair, like don't necessarily expect this, but it, you know, that is sometimes one of the, you know, when you're explaining risks and benefits or whatever, and, you know, not to freak out because if you're, if you're consistent with the range of motion stuff every day, let as soon as your body's ready, you know, you're going to be able to attain what it's, what it's giving you now. So I think I've seen that a little bit more recently and I'll be honest, it's just, it still is just getting the quad back is really initially, even if people have some, it's just not the, it's just not the same, I think, for that first month. And I think I, I would say this might be even a systematic issue going back to like what we said earlier about the females just not being introduced to the weight room and individuals who are getting these in- injuries, of course, like as a strength coach, I'm not even familiar with this. Uh, in this process. And the idea of making sure you can do all of these things before your operation, that's new to me. And I wonder, and you could possibly give your input, 
Is this something that is even being discussed by surgeons or uh, doctors before the operations? Like, we don't need to rush into this. Like, uh, we need to take our time. You need to make sure you can do these three pillar things. And then, I mean, I guess that might be a stupid question. You sort of smirked, on it. but uh, it might be just simply educating the individual before their surgery. I've definitely come across uh, a rise in adherence. Sorry, go ahead. Em. Sorry. No, I was like, I think that's like the biggest thing. A lot of this is a lack of education from the get go. If we can get people resistance training, getting them stronger, the education will drive adherence. And then from there, we bridge that gap. But go ahead, Steph. That, that, it, this topic in particular grinds my gears a little bit um, because it's so common and we've lost a lot of great athletes and I've seen it happen to a lot of my friends and it's, it's, it's devastating. Yeah. And I mean, it's definitely become, I think, less devastating than it was than when maybe we were all really young, but um, it still is not a it's not even a six month process. It's at least nine months at minimum, if you're doing it right. And it completely changes your life to be entirely honest. Um, the, I mean, I know this particular podcast is not, um, you know, going down this rabbit hole, but I have a huge bias on the psychological impact of it. And there, there's so much of that. I think that still also kind of hasn't been tapped into. And I know a lot of it, there will be crossover with any serious injury. Um, but I think even now more so because it is so talked about it, it like at a, it, at a societal level, it's just a common thing. So it's almost like, it's almost like we are as a society, hypervigilant on, on this particular injury. I have worked with a handful of young female athletes that have said in so many words that they almost at some point expected to tear their ACL at some point during their career because it was so common. And that, uh, that, that's what I'm curious, your input, the psychological side of these injuries, because I've worked with people that had some type of knee ligament issue in the past that they had surgery on. And then they come to me at several years later and they really want to just make progress within their physique, but they're afraid to progress their weights. And I'm like, I try to dive down into what is causing this. And they're just, it's the thought that something might go wrong. And it's, it's not pain. It's not discomfort. It's just the idea that I had a prior knee injury and now this is heavy weight for squatting. Yeah. And then that's just what I have to do from now on. Right. So yes, I'll try not to take too much time here <laughs> with, the, with the psychological side, but for context, like I didn't go back to basketball because I was scared. I had no, I mean, this is also hindsight. So at the time it was because I wanted to focus on PT school. BS, I would have, like, I probably could have played, at least walked on at Ithaca's small B3 school. Um, but I, that's the part that bothers me because I mean, now I still deal with some stuff that like limits how much plyo, like basketball in any large volumes definitely bothers my knee. Um, 
But I think that part of the issue that, or, or part of the, it grinds my gears thing that first made me kind of dive down ACL rehab a little bit more as a clinician, but then also what ended up sparking me just starting coaching in addition to what I do, because I realized so many people really just need kind of specialized strength and conditioning because they don't real like, you know, it's almost like a niche population of, um, strength and conditioning and they would do great with that. They just don't realize what they are able to do. And most, like you guys are saying, most strength coaches aren't, they're not necessarily well-versed in like how, how a program might be somewhat skewed or might be a little bit, um, specific to somebody who has had this injury and who maybe hasn't, hasn't left the ground in three years or like, but they want to play flag football or, you know, they want to play, pick up adult basketball or something like that. So where I really feel confident and that I can help people outside of the clinic at this point is with that type of programming where, you know, we can do some baseline testing so I can see where people are at and then knowing what they, A, might be sensitive to, B, maybe they don't have an ACL, maybe they didn't get surgery. So there's certain things that I might, you know, modify in the programming or whatever that is, but it's so common that I get, you know, that's particularly the population that I enjoy working with through ACL Resolve is people that have completely modified their leisure activity for the last however many years, because they just don't think that they can do it. And they have basically settled for like a lower activity level. Um, and they're wanting to change that. So you mentioned something that made me think of this, uh, when you touched on that, some strength coaches just might not know an approach. Are you take, are you talking an approach that's just well balanced that hits all the major movement types, or is there certain approaches that should be taking taken with individuals with these knee issues? I think it's more of, and again, I've also, that's not across the board. There's, there's strength coaches I've met that could very well. I'd be like, you'd be yeah. fine. Like, got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but certain things that I think what I hear more often from coaches is just that when somebody has this type of concern and a past injury or surgery, they almost themselves don't necessarily want to take that person on because they're not sure if I think there's misconceptions around you know, post-op or somebody actually, you know, didn't get surgery, what they can and can't do. And nobody wants to be the person that ends up causing somebody to have an injury, which again, in the strength training world would be pretty hard to do unless, unless you guys are playing pickup basketball in, in, uh, in your sessions. But, um, but I think it's more of not necessarily a, that they wouldn't be able to do a global, global approach, but there's certain things that I feel like based on what I know right now that I would make sure are like always in somebody's program if they've had an injury, this particular injury, because there's some characteristic kind of modification, like movement modifications or compensations that the the body goes through um, because it's really, really, really good and smart. And it's really good at offloading your quad and your knee, um, even if the movement itself looks good and symmetrical. So there's just going to be considerations such that there's going to be a decent amount of like isolated quad work, isolated hamstring work, um, 
that wouldn't maybe inherently be in just a general, like you were saying, global approach um, program. So when you say more individual quad and hamstring, would you say uh, that you're doing more isolated work would be a safer approach with someone with these past injuries or just making sure you have those things in the program? Good question. So I think just making sure that they are, um, like if someone's working out three times a week, that three times a week, there's some sort of isolated work. It doesn't mean like I still program squats, deadlifts, um, bench, all that kind of stuff. But that, I think that continued stimulus for them. And I also, things like, well, I'll give you an example, soccer player, right? If they have access to a knee extension machine, which I hope everyone would post, post this injury, um, but not just doing like a regular machine, single leg knee extension, but maybe we go through a block where we do, um, we tempo those and we use a metronome. So like they're going maybe through like 80% of the range, but it's quick. So part of what a soccer player has to do is kick a long ball. And knee extensions are great to get strong, but are they working, you know, quote unquote, open chain knee extension um, at different speeds? Are they generating force quickly in that realm? Are they also, you know, single leg decelerations are great for, for field athletes too. So you, you know, unpredictable, you can make it, you have them start running. And then when you clap, they have to stop on one foot. So essentially they'll either if they're too high, if they're too tall, they're not bending their knee enough, they're going to keep going. But if they're low, not only does that have to be the quad that's opposing that horizontal force now, but they have the strength to oppose it and completely stop or change and go backwards. So that kind of stuff would be maybe not something I would put in for like, if I was coaching my sister or, (laughs) but you know, stuff. And then also like tying it into their specific goals. Hold that. Restate that, Adam. You cut out. Oh, so I kind of want to get into, you know, the the conversations that you would have um, because you you seems like, again, you deal with a lot of athletes. And again, they're being told a lot of different things from their MD, their surgeon. Right. I think a lot of individuals they're Again, you said they're timetable based. Hey, six months, you're good. Nine months, you're good. But how are you navigating a lot of those difficult conversations, either with the parent, with the client? And even with the surgeon to let them know, hey, this person's not ready. Stop telling them that they're ready. That is the ongoing struggle. Um, I do feel in general that with the actual patient athlete or their family, that those questions are pretty, I'm sorry, those conversations tend to be a little easier. Um, I also recognize that I am lucky where I'm at right now because in a in our local area and in general a good amount of the people coming to me are coming to me because they were told by somebody else to come to me so their um their likelihood of kind of following my lead when it comes to my advice on when to return is is much higher than you know just the average person coming in off the street However, I think the biggest things that have helped me with maybe a skeptical parent or a very antsy athlete um, is really to lean a little bit more on the objective. So, and that 
the timelines aren't necessarily what they used to be. Um, and there's usually a way from what we've done to say, hey, this A, B, and C here are like still really super hard for him or her. And for their sport, they need to be able to do A, B, C, D, and more. So before we before we move on, and again, they're unfortunately the um, the sign off or the you know return to sport blessing ultimately does usually come from the MD or the surgeon. So it's we are sometimes in a tough position but we are also in a unique position because we see them more often and we have more of that data. So I do tend to lean a little bit more on that. And I, I'm pretty transparent. I just say, I like, you guys can do totally anything you want to do at the end of the day. I just am telling you what I feel like is in your best interest. And that, you know, at this point in time, I don't necessarily feel ethically comfortable saying you can go back to the field. Um, or the court or whatever it is. Um, surgeons, we really just rarely speak to. We're lucky around here in Boston. Um, I have a good relationship with one of the doctors and his team at Boston Children's that do a lot of, um, he's doing more quad repair now, um, quad tendon, but you know, I'm able to shoot him, him an email anytime about any of the, the patients of his that I have. I was able to have one of my, one of our mutual patients who was kind of having a tough time mentally about being non-weight bearing for six weeks um, to, we started some partial weight bearing at like five weeks. I emailed him, I was like, this kid's ready. Like, you know, is it, you know, and he was totally transparent. Like, yeah, I make it six weeks because if you give kids an inch, they'll take a mile, that kind of stuff. So I, you know, I hope to develop more of those relationships over the years, but I gotta be honest, we don't, unless you work in a hospital system, it's really hard to get a hold of the surgeon. You nine and a half times out of 10 will talk to their PA. Gotcha. Um, I understand that you have to go, but I need to ask you one more question. Right? It's like specifically, you know, with, I guess, you know, the, the exercises, those big lifts, what are you using? And then uh, you kind of already touched on it a little bit, how you incorporate leg extensions within your sessions, but I guess, what is your typical rep and set scheme? And it seems like, again, it's more goal oriented for that individual. Uh, but could you kind of explain what a typical session looks for a typical ACL repair? Yeah. So right now, I'm just going to think of one of my athletes off the top of my head. So I have someone who's just getting into um, plyometrics at about, um, she's a little bit older and she had a cadaver graft. So I, I hold a little bit on plyos. Um, for that particular population, but we're just getting into that now. So how I would structure it is, you know, some form of warm up um, early on, really for the first at least three months, unless they have full range pretty quickly, there's going to be a range of motion component. That is more so because I know that at least those three days a week, they're going to do something that's focused on getting more extension and something that's focused on getting more flexion. Um, and then I'll go into more of like, um, I would love to, you know, as soon as they can tolerate some sort of isometric first, like I'll do a, a quad isometric, um, could just be at 60 degrees on the knee extension machine, holding for maybe four or five rounds of like 20 seconds each. Those should be as heavy as they could tolerate. You know, I tell them they should be getting, 
um, some shaking by the end of the, the 20 seconds. And I'm sorry, right after the warm-up, if they are at the level of doing plyos, that's when I'll put plyos. Um, and more so that's because, well, A, I kind of just was taught to do like some of the more neurologically heavy stuff early. Um, who knows, that might change too. And then I will likely do either a warm-up circuit that's like single leg or something like that, or we'll go right into whatever the main lift is for that day. So if it's a squat day, then we'll do that. And that varies anywhere from, you know, early on, we're probably doing a box spot so that they're not fully to depth, but that they are getting comfortable with loading in general. Um, and then I will have one to two sort of accessory circuits, which probably again, another isolative movement. So I'll have one in the beginning, maybe ISO, like actual isometric and then isolated again, somewhere in the rest of the session. Um, and I will kind of put in, you know, I will add an upper body for people that, um, you know, obviously to have some rest per sets and if they're not doing upper body on their own. Um, and then for, for people who are going back to a specific sport on one of those days, maybe the, you know, if it's an end of the week, like a Thursday or Friday lift, you know, I'll incorporate a single leg balance thing with like a soccer ball or something like that to make sure that um, they're touching and being involved in their sport somewhat while they can't play. that we kind of have to take to again get somebody that is almost their quad is almost shut off they've been cut open and now you got to give it back better because again that the best thing to re-injure yourself is in that injury already so it's it's scary but it's it's got to be fun for you to be able to continuously see someone grow uh, but again you've kind of mentioned yourself um, and I know again it's getting time sensitive but what are things that you're doing to, again, better understand this research and literature or just the practicality of ACL injuries uh, within your practice. So what do you kind of hold yourself or how are you continuously getting better at treating this, this population with a specific injury? Yeah, I'll be honest. Where, sorry. Or, or, or can I phrase it? Where are other, or where have you already gone that you would refer Chris and I or our audience to, Hey, if you want to go, and get educated on it, this is probably where you should go as well. I will be honest. I used to get on myself, like beat myself down for like not reading enough research. And yes, I do still regularly read stuff. However, I put less pressure on myself there and more of like, yes, I think where research comes in the most is it makes me ask more questions about what I'm doing, which is huge because you can read a bajillion systematic reviews and come out of it and be like, I don't really know that they don't tell me that again, still read them. I'm just saying like research is definitely a, a core piece. Um, but I definitely see it differently. Um, and I do think that at, at the very least it allows you to practice at just a much more solid informed level. Um, so that's one piece I would say that having a couple of really solid mentors that you have, it doesn't even have to be like a formal mentorship, but, you know, people that you respect, you have just a relationship where you can kind of just run stuff by them when you're running into some roadblocks, because it's going to happen. Um, and Con Ed's a tough one for me, because it's really, I'm, I'm very, I'm very particular about that, and um, also about the cost of some of them as well. The one thing I would say, doesn't matter whether you're a student and new, well, maybe mostly new clinicians or seasoned clinician. Um, but Eric Mira's hip and knee course 
is phenomenal. He's the science PT. Um, what was the name? Eric Aaron what? Eric, E-R-I-K. Eric? Yeah, M-E-I-R-A. But um, he is so well-read, um, very experienced, has worked with kids all the way up to professional athletes, um, and also does have a really well-rounded understanding of not just the biomechanics, but also of the psychological uh, impact and his ability to relay what the research is telling us in like terms where you, you hear it and you're like, oh, that makes sense. Like, <laughs> and he's also just hilarious, but that is actually one that I would, and his, he shares all of his reference lists. So that's like, if you're looking for just one place to start and not to feel like, oh my gosh, there's all these things I have to read. Like I would hundred percent start there. Now, this is great because again, I think it's so common, but yet so, I guess, you know, put out there. So you understand what happens. And it seems like, again, the best teacher is life in itself. And just going through that experience of, you know, trial and error with your, your population of your patients. Um, Cause I always say, you know, certifications, degrees, they're just a piece of paper, right? I, they made me do the work. They made me do the studying, but I've learned so much more with actually working with individuals, talking to them and honestly asking, yo, tell me, yo, what do I suck at? Let me know so I can kind of fill and bridge those gaps. Um, so again, Steph, we appreciate your time. I know we're a little bit over it, but I, I apologize for that. Um, this was phenomenal. We'll definitely have to have you. Um, and honestly, my goal is to get you know, the level up and the uh, clinical athlete all and evidence-based movement all on one podcast and just hear what all y'all have to say and just really get it on. Um, when are we going to do this? When are we going to do this round table? I don't know. We need, it needs to happen because we have, it's beautiful. The th greatest thing about these podcasts is we've met a lot of great people. We've had great conversations and all I want to do is just put us all in one fucking room and just chat it out. And uh, it's funny because, because some of the people actually are very close friends with some of the other people that we did on our podcast. And it's like, exactly. we just, we need to bring everyone together, bring them all together, yeah. have some tea and let's get it going. So, <laughs> but yeah, Steph, no, you keep us posted. Hey, it honestly, you know, I'm thinking, you know, winter time, you know, right. Like in that weird ish time where Thanksgiving's done and right before Christmas, I think a lot of people yeah. should have a lot of time with that. Um, yep. That's what my game plan is. Uh, but Steph, for those individuals that have no idea, where to find you or your content, please throw it out there. Yeah. So I'm mostly comfortable and active on Instagram. It's just stephallen.dpt. Um, I'm occasionally helping out on the level up initiative. That's literally just at the level up initiative on Instagram. Um, I don't have a website yet for ACL resolve and I am primarily actually using stephallen.dpt for that. Um, but that is again, just the the virtual coaching that I do for individuals who have had an ACL injury, um, on the side. So if that is something that either yourself or somebody, you know, is interested in, maybe you don't have, you know, more of it, it's mostly like people that don't have good resources around them and would potentially be up for, um, maybe a little bit of a, an orthodox approach to, to their rehab. Um, then yeah, just shoot me a message. And, uh, I can also, I mean, I'm also just Steph, steph at the level up initiative.com um people have questions and stuff you can feel free to email me 
Got it. Yeah, we'll make sure to put everything in the show notes. So if you have questions, concerns, you know who the queen of ACL injury and prehab and post rehab, all of that good stuff. She is here. That was all the smoke on ACL rehab. And I hope everyone's having a great day. Appreciate y'all listening and make sure you guys give us a, a comment, review, all of that good stuff. And we will be back next week with another special guest.